This week's Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by Vericode, CA Technologies' application security business. CA Vericode is a leader in helping organizations secure the software that powers their world. CA Vericode's SaaS platform and integrated solutions help security teams and software developers find and fix security-related defects at all points in the software development lifecycle before they can be exploited by hackers. You can check them out at vericode.com. Hello and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's podcast, open source software has revolutionized the way software applications get made and turbocharged the growth of companies like Facebook and Uber. But is the open source model failing us when it comes to security? We're joined by OWASP founder Mark Kerfee of CA Vericode to discuss it. But first, Hacker Summer Camp wrapped up on Sunday as the 26th annual DEF CON conference concluded at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, ending a week of security conferences, including the annual Black Hat briefings and B-Sides Las Vegas. Some of the headlines out of the shows were predictable. DEFCON's voting village yielded stories about outdated electronic voting equipment becoming easy prey for hackers, including, this year, an 11-year-old girl. Hacks of connected vehicles were another big theme at this year's shows, especially after Tesla chief Elon Musk made a surprise appearance at DEF CON to meet with security researchers and promise to release Tesla's vehicle security software as open source. That's a great gesture, and it speaks to Musk's history and roots in the software field where he helped launch PayPal. But as we know, the automobile industry is older and very different from Silicon Valley and its software-based startups. There's no indication that the future of connected cars is going to look anything like, say, the future of connected phones. To get a sense of where things might be heading, Security Ledger stopped by the car hacking village at DEF CON last week to speak to the folks from Grim Security, a top vehicle security consultancy. In this conversation, I speak with Bryson Bort, the founder of Grim, as well as security researchers Tomas Tillery and Aaron Cornelius about the differences and similarities between hacking vehicles and hacking other kinds of connected endpoints. To start off, you're going to hear from Bryson Bort, the chairman and founder of Grimm, and a visiting fellow at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. So what's new at, at the car hacking village this year? So the kidnapping is new. That one's fun. I'm gonna, has I'm anyone done it yet? Other, yeah, there have okay. been. Um, that one is a lot of fun. I really like the concept there. So people have actually done it with the... Oh, yeah. Uh, every once in a while, the goons will come and they'll yeah. grab somebody and throw them in the trunk. So, okay. so but yeah, the guy like a, a mask they put on that everybody. Is great. It's, it's good fun. Um, the other one over there, the, uh, battle, the battle car stuff. Yes. Last year, we did have a RoboCar can injection challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, there's actually we've got a course set up for it. There's also what they call uh, the donkey cars, which is going to be people have brought in a vehicle, a vehicle that's supposed to be fully autonomous that they've made themselves. There's not very many this year. Okay. We hope that as we do these, we, as we continue to do these, that yep. it will get better in future years. You know, right now, if you see this happening, you say, oh, well, next year, I'm going to go. So it's called work. donkey cars? Yeah, they call them donkey cars. I'm not entirely sure why. You might need to go over and ask them. Right. Looking at what we're doing, of course, is you know these are all different elements of getting folks familiar with how these systems work. Yeah, and think about it. Let's say you're, let's say you're just a, a general security researcher and you've right. done work on application, application security or web security or operating system work or something, and you're like, oh, you know, I've read about this car hacking stuff. I'd like to do that. Do you think you're really going to start for the first time in your own car? Probably not. 
Probably not, right? Listening to Charlie and Chris's experience, yeah, no. There might be some, right? But you know, something like the the Grim 3PO exhibit that we have here. Yeah. Here's an opportunity. Here's an entire 2012 Ford Focus, minus the parts that don't matter, and we give you what I call the spouse test, where you can walk up, follow the instructions, and you're you're now oriented. You're now getting to do something, right? And you get to see that effect, and that's a really big part of it. Is see the change not just right. some esoteric something but something happens right there in front of you so what, what types of things uh, is it capable of doing just with this exhibit you have set up here uh, so because we're hooked into the CAN bus directly and yeah. we have the ability to send arbitrary messages over it anything that is capable of being performed by the computers in this car we can do right um, the specific examples we use here are uh, easy ones to do because they require a single message each mm -hmm. and that's to flash the brake fluid low warning and to unlock the car uh-huh so there are some more advanced that's the things. kind of challenge right exactly right. there are some more advanced things that we could still do but they would take a few more steps for example right. to lock the brakes right um, there's constant validation so we'd have to send a series of messages in the right order with the right values right it's still possible to do with these systems because right. we can send whatever messages we want right but it takes a lot more uh, kind of knowledge of the systems, a lot more reverse engineering to figure out. So that's the sort of thing that we encourage people to start learning how to do. Right. And this exhibit is kind of built for them to get their, their feet wet, their hands a little dirty. How much like overlap is there between this and like application testing or stuff that like a lot of these guys might do in their job? So my main job is actually to do application testing and reverse engineering on desktop PCs. Right. Uh, it turns out there's a lot of overlap. All of this is written in the same languages that uh -huh. consumer code is written in. Uh -huh. It's just compiled to different architectures. Right. Instead of the x86 chip that you might have in your home computer, right. we're running PowerPC. Right. We're right, running right. MIPS. It's all just the same code in a different assembly language, written in slightly different styles because you need to do things slightly safer in an environment where memory leaks matter versus where they don't. Right. But overall, the reverse engineering process itself is very, very similar. You just have to understand a different communication protocol. Right. I'm not talking to a web server. I'm talking to a car computer. But if I know how they communicate, it's exactly the same. And a lot of the software here is pretty dated at this point. You're talking about embedded XP. A large part of the reason for that is, is that the development cycle on automotive is so long. You're not going to see a, something that was developed today, finished today, wouldn't be car, in cars until at least 2023. That's just how long the development cycle is right. once something's finished. If you think about how much software drives and influences the performance of the vehicle, if I'm changing out a you know a mechanical piece, I need right. to update the software to be able to accommodate that. I mean, one of the things I find really interesting in us is like, yes, that's the case in automobiles, but when you move to other types of electronics, like smartphones, for example, there's a totally different model, which is much more of a contained model, and there seems to be a lot more hostility. To what do you mean? Are you mean contained in this in that the way like Apple like locks down that you have to get a code from them to put to a new screen? On. It's like if GM wanted you to like get a special code to replace your windshield, you know, or something like that. Well, and you you see you see different sides of that with the debate between things like the walled garden approach of Apple right. versus the Android. more open approach approach of Android. Right. There are people who will always want to have that feeling of ownership, that feeling of control over the devices that they own and that they use and that they put their trust in. People want to to have faith in the thing they put their trust in, and the best way to get that is to get your hands dirty. So as a result of that, you have systems like in cars where people have that that need. And that requirement, and part of that is a cultural thing as well. The idea of the guy in his garage tuning up his car, that's, exactly that's Americana. It. Muscle cars are America. Phones are a thing that everyone just kind of has. Cars are a thing that everybody owns. So here's an interesting way that this actually flips. On phones, we're used to a level of privacy and concern about our personal privacy. Now, as you start to look at the amount of data that's available and the interconnectivity of the cars, and then how much that interconnectivity is going back over 
the cloud that yeah. those car manufacturers yeah. maintain. Right. So there's the question around the data and right. the privacy around that data. Right. And I promise you, there are already open industry discussions about how they're going to monetize that data. And who's advocating or looking at that from the consumer perspective? Right, because from their perspective, you know, they're used to a sort of, you know, you sell a car, you get a lot of money, but then it's really diminishing returns over the life of the car. If you can have some kind of subscription service mm-hmm. or monetize the data, you know, you're going to make a lot more money off or or I'll let you have it for free but I get to track everywhere you are so I can offer up you know it's in, 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 right. advertisements on your it's dashboard like the inkjet printer model right so you, the car only costs $500 but you know we, we also see that with like you got to buy our gas yeah. so we also see that with things like insurance companies who right. will sell give you something to plug into your OTP2 port it will monitor how fast you're going and if you drive safely yeah your then rates go down. their rates go down right, right? well right. they're doing something more with that data I guarantee right. you have you seen um, since you've been doing these kind of an evolution or uh, progress in kind of skill that people have and in being able to you know interface with, I mean this is like an intro session. People are just getting their, their hands wet. But I mean, have you seen sort of the space itself really uh, advance? So uh, conveniently, we just built the first defensive automotive engineering class that's commercially available. Congratulations! <laughs> oh, and what's it called? Uh, Grim Automotive Defensive Engineering class. We launched a, an automotive or mobility and critical infrastructure embedded system lab up in Michigan. Uh-huh. And that's where we, we built the training. And we're now, um, the next class is actually the end of this month. Um, and these and are people from within the industry who are coming and training? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we have the auto manufacturer engineers have been coming to, to it. And, and we're, we're offering it quarterly right now. And the demand is so high that, first of all, we have to offer it repeatedly. But mm-hmm. people are flying into the country from overseas to take this class because wow. there, there really isn't anything like it and there right. needs to be. And what do you teach them? I'm actually trying to think through all the training days we're doing. Um, we talk about encryption, how encryption works and how it can be used appropriately in mm-hmm. embedded systems. Um, but overall, it's taking a look at here's how an attacker would look at a particular system and help people designing them understand better how to think like them. an adversary, right? Adversarial yeah. thinking. You know, not every software engineer has to be an expert in security, of course. Right. Right. Uh, but at the same time, if you're aware of security principles, then it makes it easier to design a more secure system. Yep. Listen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. No, thank you for talking. Really appreciate it. It was great. Up next, open source software has revolutionized the way software applications get made and how companies get started. The proliferation of open source projects has created an ecosystem of ready-made building blocks that can be used to create and expand software applications at lightning speed. Companies like Google, Facebook, Twitter, and yes, even Microsoft now rely heavily on open source software to power their growth and operations. But all is not well in the open source space when it comes to security. The widespread use and reuse of open source libraries and code might accelerate software development, but it also spreads around cyber risk in the form of exploitable software vulnerabilities in that code, and even backdoors, malware, and ransomware that have wormed their way into open source repositories. The world woke up to this risk with the Heartbleed vulnerability in OpenSSL, but the problem is much bigger than one open source project. To get a better understanding of it, we caught up with Mark Curfee of the firm CA Veracode on the sidelines of the Black Hat briefings. In this conversation with Mark, we talk about the founding of his company, SourceClear, which was acquired by CA Veracode, and about the problem of tracing the impact of open source vulnerabilities in software applications. Unlike other security research problems, Curfee tells us solving the open source 
security dependency problem requires cutting-edge data science in order to analyze changes and similarities across millions of open-source libraries and billions of lines of code. To start out our conversation, I asked Mark to talk about the founding of SourceClear and what that company's technology does. You know, I, I left Microsoft and I saw that there were three fundamental things happening. So the first was the cloud. Everyone was embracing the cloud. And we saw mm-hmm. that happening with, you know, TFS and, and these products. Mm-hmm. I was rolled up into the developer division. I was rolling, running a thing called MSDM, which is how we distributed developer tools. And I just saw this mass change. The second one was DevOps. So all of a sudden, everyone was automating everything. So we looked at the traditional kind of technology, which typically was, was sort of hand-assisted. Mm-hmm. And this thing was, was clear that this wasn't going to work in the future. And then the third one was open source. So, you know, even at Microsoft and we were building MSDN, the vast majority of the code we were building was open source. And you looked at this kind of like traditional way we did security. And I said, well, like, the next generation of developer tools and security tools are going to be the intersection of those things. And I, you know, the very famed startup thing, I drew a Venn diagram on the back of a napkin. Uh, bam, in the middle of there is going to be where someone's going to solve. And honestly, the first thing we started trying to build was um, what were called intra-procedural static analysis tools. So basically things that could run really fast from a developer's perspective. But then Heartbleed kicked him. And you know, I was getting phone calls from people like, can you help us out with this? And we realized mm-hmm. what we had built mm-hmm. would enable us to be applied to that problem. Mm-hmm. So that was the problem that we decided we'd have the biggest impact with. You know, in the early stages, it was, it's one of these problems and it still is today. It's one of these things that on the surface of it, it looks like a really easy problem to go solve. But actually the complexity that sits underneath the hood makes it a very complex one to go solve. So, you know, well, we, we, we first of all started picking CVEs from the CVE system. We thought we had a, a pre-populated list of vulnerabilities. It turns out you didn't, and you had to build a data science and machine learning system to go find them. It turned out that the majority of times when you use vulnerable open source libraries, you don't actually use them in a way that's vulnerable, so you have to build core graph technology, and, and so on and so forth. And so as we, as we got down the path and we attracted a lot of big customers and government customers, etc., um, you know, the Verico guys had had a relationship with Chris Weissopel for a long time, and you know, they had started down the problem and Chris and I kind of shared how complex it was. And I think he could see around the corner and said, yeah, you know, we, we're, we're going to struggle to build this. You've obviously got this, this great tech. It's going to complement things. And right. so, yeah, so that's how it came together. So talk about that sort of co- that, that uh, core problem of, as you put it, just because you're using a particular open source library that happens to have a vulnerability doesn't mean necessarily that your code is exposed to that vulnerability. Yep. How, does, how does that work? Yeah, so it actually turns out in, and it's slightly different between different languages, but mm-hmm. on average, 90% of the time you use vulnerable libraries, you're not vulnerable. Um, wow. You're not using the part. So it's a massive problem. And if you think about the world of DevOps, you can't be shutting down a DevOps pipeline nine times out of 10 and have it wrong. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's very fundamentally important. So, you know, if you think about it, think of a library as being, you know, a discrete piece of code. And let's say it has 10,000 lines. It may only be one line that you call that is actually vulnerable. There may be, you know, a thousand ways to get in and consume that library. So what you have to do is figure out, are they actually using that particular vulnerable line of code? Right. Uh, and that was one of the things that SourceClear became popular with the only people that, that did that. Because it's, it's cool graph engineering. It's, you know, sort of hard, hard computer science. Right. So, um, so, yeah. And, it, you know, it's... Uh, it's a, it's a significant problem, particularly in the DevOps world, where you have to be precise. Like, yes. if you want to take action and you want to take it in an automated way, you have to know exactly what to do. Right. And then the second thing is, you know, developers have historically had security people telling them the world's falling down and, like, you've got this problem and you've got that problem. So the first thing they always say is, yeah, but I don't use it in that way. If you have mm-hmm. a cool graph, you say, well, actually, here's the line of code where you call it and here's the, mm-hmm. here's the path. So mm-hmm. you kind of solve that problem and get the developer on board. So that's almost kind of a um, cultural or process problem of saying we're not just blowing smoke here. Precisely. Right. It's, you know, right. you, you kind of like, here's a potential problem. So the analogy is, it's like having a trap door down this corridor here that was set outside. 
As long as I know there's a trapdoor, I can avoid it. Someone may have walked on that trapdoor or may have injured their leg. Mm-hmm. Those are two very different things. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, mm-hmm. And so some people take the stance of, I don't want any trapdoors. Mm-hmm. But other people take the chance of, I'm fine, there are trapdoors everywhere. That's the way the world works. I only want to know if someone's fallen down and broken their leg. And right. that's a problem that we have to deal with. You're listening to the Security Ledger Podcast. This week's podcast is sponsored by Veracode, CA Technologies Application Security Business. CA Veracode is a leader in helping organizations secure the software that powers their world. CA Veracode's SaaS platform and integrated solutions help security teams and software developers find and fix security-related defects at all points in the software development lifecycle before they can be exploited by hackers. Check them out at veracode.com. We're here at Black Hat, which I generally take as kind of a an indicator, a leading indicator of where the industry is going and what people are concerned about. Yeah. I don't count many talks that are explicitly really getting into this issue. To the extent that people are talking about open source, they're talking about the GitHub repository for the tool that they're releasing at Black Hat. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, not sure. open source security in and of itself and why, yeah. you know, DevOps and why they need to be concerned yeah. about it. Why do you think that is? Is that evidence that we have already, as an industry, sort of wrapped our mind around this problem and are just dealing with it and it's no longer something interesting enough to warrant a black hat talk? Or on the other hand, maybe that we are sort of, we've heard it, but we're sweeping it under the rug and kind of charging forward. Yeah, sure. Well, so I I honestly don't know. And I I was kind of surprised when when I heard that as well. Um, There's certainly not people don't fully understand the problem. And the, and the problem isn't just vulnerabilities, it's malware ransomware is getting into the open source yeah. because you know, we've got the same conditions when virus propagated in the 90s, right? Yeah. Basically, you've got a, a way that you can write something which is consumed by lots of people and will execute in the same way. Right. So what we're gonna see happening is instead of this just being about vulnerabilities, this is gonna be ransomware put into the heart of business apps. So it's a, a you know, huge, huge problem and pending problem. It's definitely a complex one and I think that, you know, to really analyze it well, it's not a traditional security research thing where you analyze a piece of code and find a vulnerability. Yeah. You have to apply data science. I mean, we're talking about millions of lines of co- millions of libraries, billions of lines of code. Yeah. So this isn't like you can analyze this on a laptop, right? Like, right. you know, our, our big data cluster runs, you know, terabit stuff inside of inside of AWS. It costs many, many, many thousands of dollars a month to, to continue. And I have four PhDs who are working on the data science part of it, right? right. So. So yeah, it's complex and you know, it's it's rapidly changing as well. Every night there can be 10, 100,000 li- new libraries published. Yeah. And so it's a moving target um, and we're seeing you know different senses of the way the attackers are moving. So within the last couple of months, you've seen in the NPM, the, the Node.js world, which is server-side JavaScript, we've seen many backdoored libraries and they've done things like you know take AWS credentials, take SSH keys, things like mm-hmm. that. In mm-hmm. the Python world, we've seen people attacking big data systems. Mm-hmm. So you know it's very real of how it's happening, but the isolated cases to a, to a large extent have been people just finding them accidentally or in, in these cases. We have that you're not going to scale right to do that. It has to be you know, a big data system in order to do it. So you know we're certainly not at the awareness level of, of, of where we need to be. So a lot of people will say, oh, like yeah, we're you know we're looking for CVEs, and they don't understand that the vast majority of these things never find into CVEs as an right. example and things like that. So right. you know there's still a there's still a fair, fair amount of way to go. Equifax surfaced the problem, right? This is like the biggest breach in history yes. that was caused because of that. Yes, we should have known it was coming because we saw shell shock and we saw Heartbleed, and mm-hmm. these things are not you know are not new, but that's now become the new norm. Do you see evidence that? the downstream consumers of some of these products, like Apache Struts, for example, have uh, digested the Equifax breach uh, or or others like it 
and well, are prioritizing this, or is it more kind of there but for the grace of God go I? Well, the Apache one is a, is a, is a, is a good conversation to have, right? Yeah. So just after that Struts thing came out, I happened to be in Australia, and I, I went and met, uh, met the, the chairman of the Apache Foundation. He happens to live in Sydney, and we, uh-huh. had, a, we had a coffee. And it was, a, it was one of those kind of questions like, you know, conversations are like, hey, your kind of baby's ugly, what are you doing about it? And like, <laughs> trying, to, trying to be polite, right? And, and, you know, ultimately, I think the Apache Software Foundation is probably the most important software company in the world, right? Without any shadow of a doubt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people think about the Apache web servers and struts and things, but actually, you know, Spark, which is the big data system, everyone uses it. NASDAQ, Gen- Beijing, Beijing Genomics Institute, every, everything's using it. Hadoop, Cloudera, Hortonworks are all built off of, off of these things. And I kind of said to him, like, you know, you have a responsibility with this. Like, what are you doing about it? And his response was, we uh, are a best efforts organization. It's called the Apache Way. I don't mandate anything. We don't force people to do things in a certain way. We provide guidance. And that's the way it works. And the reality is the guidance they provide, some projects take it on board, but the vast majority don't. So I can tell you, Struts today has another remote code execution in it. The, the current version of Struts, there's another one in it today. That nobody knows about? They, they know about it if they, they went and did the analysis, but they're, not, they're clearly not doing the analysis. The bad guys do. The code's out there, it's open, it's available for anyone to go see, okay. right? Um, you know, and, and we're, living in, we're living in this weird connected world so, where... So, so, what, so, so what happens with that? I mean, that's a pretty big deal, remote code execution in Apache. Many Apache projects have it. I yeah. mean, many open source projects have these problems. That, and that's, right. you know, it is kind of interesting that we're living in this world and people are accepting it. Yeah. And maybe people have become jaded by, by the vulnerabilities and things. I don't, I don't yeah. know. But yeah, they're all, they're all there. They're, they're hiding in plain sight and they're there for everyone to see. And, you know, the, the, the kind of, the, the more... Or not the more, not the bigger challenge, but another kind of interesting challenge is that, you know, Struts is particularly used for web-based interfaces to network devices and things. You don't go and build that yourself. Mm-hmm. People can figure out what's using Struts, so mm-hmm. like you can tie these like kill chains together in a really effective way. Yeah. Or, you know, the bad guys will go to GitHub, they'll watch who's following Struts, and you, you go up there and you'll see, oh, look, Hawaii, uh, Cisco, mm-hmm. and all these people. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, they're contributing code, they're obviously baking it into their product. So you can build these maps, right? Right. Um, right. And I think that's what we're starting to see with the bad guys. And right. I think a lot of people haven't quite quite realized the, you know, I guess in the, in the old world it was called network mapping and, you know, OSINT and all that sort of stuff. Like, people are doing it with code. And right. they're figuring out what's put into what products and how can right. you go exploit it, right? And the sort of utopian view would be, well, that just, you know, puts the onus on the people who are using those, you know, the, the you know, Cisco's or Hawaii or whatever to really up their game and make sure that they're doing, you know, best efforts on security because everybody can see that they're using this component. But of right. course... But of course, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that, right? And what we're seeing is we're seeing the open source model is kind of breaking down. So the big data ones are fascinating. So if you think of Hadoop, which is the core for Cloudera and Hortonworks, you know, I can tell you there are, there are big vulnerabilities in that stuff, but they are not in their commercial products. So like, what does that tell you? Like they're mm-hmm. not feeding it back in. in Security uh, becomes a feature that draws you to the, to the premium version. You pay for it. That's not what you think you're getting, right? Another example of that is uh, we were asked last year by a CISO who's, who I just bumped into just now. He said, we bake Glassfish into our product, which is an Oracle, pro- an Oracle Java server. And he said, the commercial version keeps getting security updates, but the free version that we bake in doesn't. Like, what's up? So as a favor to him, we reverse engineered this thing. I was like, oh yeah, sure. Oracle don't update the free version, but they update the paid version. Oh, wow. Well, but there's all these people both embedding it into network device products. Oh, wow. So we're seeing these kind of like open source models right. are 
breaking down. And there is down a simplicity and... trust in, in open source as well, and we kind of saw that with the OpenSS, you know, with Heartblade. Sure. Um, where, you know, you assume, especially if it's an open source product managed by a company like Oracle or, yep. or contributed to substantially, there is a mental calculation that probably some people are making of, well, they're taking care of the basic blocking and tackling, you know, I can I can rely on this. Sure. Whereas what you're saying is, may or may not be the case. You, you know, the, the challenge is always is that if you want to take that piece of open source and inherit it yourself, it no longer, it's really no longer open source. Yeah, so, so, you know, the economics kind of go out the window and, you know, we, we reported a vulnerability to Amazon AWS last year. They were using HTTP connection library that you could basically create a denial of service condition onto S3 buckets with. And it was an Apache library. They didn't know. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, like people have just been consuming things blindly. Yeah. So no one's going to stop that, and no one, and nor should anyone stop doing it. I mean, it's the, it's right. the thing that's revolutionized. I mean, yes. Think of Facebook, Uber, yes. Google. These yeah. companies have been built on open source. It's amazing, but it doesn't come free. And I think we haven't quite figured out, you know, exactly what the what the what the appropriate level of tax to pay on it is. We just assume it's free. And one of the interesting things that you guys have surfaced, you guys, I mean, uh, CA Veracode, is the degree to which. Um, uh, NVD, National Vulnerability Database, and, and other equivalents to it, while a useful record um, are not authoritative. In other words, yep. that there are, as you said, many vulnerabilities that are not recorded in CVEs, yep. and um, that many of the CVEs that do get recorded are recorded well after the vulnerability became known. And many are inaccurate, and many aren't correct timing. CVE was, and the NVD was designed for a different era. It was designed for Internet Explorer, and right. where we had a set of vendors. Right? These days we have millions of those people out yeah. there, right? Yeah. So a lot of those ways those systems were designed, If you, there's a thing called CPE, Common Platform Enumeration, which is mm -hmm. designed to describe a software component. Mm -hmm. I think it has like a namespace of 180,000. Well, there's like 700,000 libraries in Java alone. Like it just can't work, right? And so they were well-intentioned, but they were designed for a different, a different era. What, what happened with, um, with the CVE system is that, you know, first of all, they would, they would describe an issue humanly. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't, doesn't solve the problem, right? So, you know, you may look at something on the surface and go, it's this library. But actually, if you look and figure out where the vulnerable piece of code is, yeah, it's kind of not. It's actually this library, and it's used by, by this thing. Right. And it's only these ranges of these things, right. and it's this code. So right. what they do is they'll say something like, you know, Apache struts is vulnerable to a remote code execution problem. Like, well, okay, what do I do with that, right? right like, right. I need to know the line of code, I need to know exactly what versions, and right. all of those things. So it, it really, it didn't contain machine-readable and executable info. Actionable information, Actionable as they call it. Right. And then the second thing is, of course, you know, the developers have embraced DevOps in the same way as everyone else has. So, like, that is a system, you know, funded by, by, by DHS, run by MITRE, and it typically takes many weeks to get a CVE number back. Well, guess what? Like, you're not going to wait six weeks, the same as you don't wait for that for your security results. So most developers, even if they know about it, they just go find, fix the problem, and they either push it straight out, sometimes they mention it in a change log, rarely do they go back to the CVE system. So we actually did an analysis for a, a, a customer in DC, and we, so what we started doing at SourceClear is we started basically using machine learning to analyze the commit logs. So uh -huh. you could find where someone was putting a vulnerability in. We applied some very sophisticated machine learning. It's Dr. Wallace, who's our data scientist. Uh -huh. But the reality is most of them you can find with the regex. And it's in the commit logs. And like the developer says, I'm fixing this reserved CVE that will be released in six weeks. <laughs> it's there if you know where to go look. Right. In other cases, it's code patterns and all of these things. And yeah, the, the vast majority you know, developers will hide these things in some cases, not intentionally or maliciously, they just don't know differently. Sometimes they put it in a change log, 
but rarely do they go back to the CV system. So when we did the study, we took the density of vulnerabilities that we're finding in the subset of libraries that we were looking at, and then said, if you ha if you found them at the same density on all the libraries, how yeah, many would there be? Extrapolate. But it was about a quarter of a million. Wow. And there's about 2,000 in the CV system. Wow. So to give you an idea of kind of like, that's what we think the, the difference in the gap is, right? right. Now there's been other research by, uh, for example, Recorded Future, that looks at another phenomena, which is, in some cases, kind of suspicious patterns of publication of CVEs, particularly when they address useful, weaponizable yep. vulnerabilities. Yep. Um, and I think they found something similar yep. in the and Russian and yeah, suspicious yeah. populating of libraries yeah. as well, which and get right. consumed by people, right? Right. So, so, so you know, these vulnerabilities are, you know, vulnerability equities are, are part of uh, arsenals now, more yep. or less. Yep. Um, how does that affect things? I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an economy, right? I mean, if I know all the products that are consuming a particular vulnerability, I know exactly what I can go, go exploit, right? right? So, and again, all the home routers, they're all running a Windows, uh, you know, a web-based interface for yep. configuring them. Yep. Like, that's not a custom web-based interface, right? Yep. Um, Android phones, they're all built on Java, right? It's yep. all open source libraries. If you go pull the APKs apart, you see it's the same libraries used over and over again. So, um, and one of the things that was kind of exciting about building the business is, you know, once you find a problem once, you've got a million people using it. Yep. <laughs> you know, from our perspective, you, you, you go, you know, find the same problem a million times. But from these guys' perspective, it's like the viruses. I write a virus that works on a Windows machine, right. and then it runs on 320 million Windows machines. For these guys, if I find an exploit or a backdoor or a library that's used by a million developers, I got a million developers. Yes. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're in an interesting era where we're going to see it exploited for sure. Okay, so to that point, um, my good friend Seth Rosenblatt at the Parallax wrote a really interesting piece on uh, an NTIA proposal that came out a few weeks back um, addressing or proposing uh, a sort of uniform software build of materials yep. or SBOM, mm -hmm. um, kind of like an ingredients list for yep. software yep. that would be standard in format and that would allow organizations in theory to say, when a vulnerability comes out, yep. you know, here are the products that yep. we have that, that use it, just like you know, Toyota can do with Takata airbags or something like that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, so, um, so it's it's one, again, it's one of these things that's simple. It sounds like a great idea. Yeah, underneath the hood, it's incredibly complex. It's the software's not manufacturing. The, the challenge is, well, many. So, like in the development world. There is a tendency to take a bunch of open source, combine it into one massive library. Mm -hmm. And so it's called fat jars. And you mm -hmm. have these things called fat jars, flat jars, and it, it aids distribution. So if you think about distributing a thousand individual libraries over a CDN, mm -hmm. instead of making a thousand calls, you make one call. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is common practice. What code sits in, if I put 25 libraries in one, which one do I put, right? So we've actually seen, to, seen software companies take a bunch of open source, put it into a fat jar and call it their own. Well. Is it really like it's? Mm -hmm. It's kind of not. Mm -hmm. And then, and, and it would be a mix of proprietary and open source. Or? Typically, they just bundle the open source up, okay. so they, so they okay. ship it once. But okay. like, you know, is that now? Now, when let's say the next open SSL problem comes in, it's like, do I have an open SSL problem, or am I using right? Paul's dot jar, right? Right. I, I don't know. Right. Um, right. So it's very easy to kind of bypass that thing, right? So, it's, so it's kind of rife for gaming. But the other problem is that even if people didn't gain the system, the way software and open source works is you make one tiny change, it's like the butterfly effect. Everything else changes. So if I want to say this piece of software has this, that may be true, but the next time it was built, it may be completely different. And so we have to understand that it's a live dynamic thing now, and particularly with DevOps and particularly with stuff being shipped all the time. So it's a, it's a complex problem to solve. I mean, I think it's altruistically, it's a, it's a fantastic idea. It's a wonderful idea. 
but it's easy to bypass, it's going to be tough to maintain, and so I think there's a lot of thought and work that needs to go into, into doing it. I mean, ultimately, what we need to do is to, every developer who packages, who uses open source, and I say every developer, you know, 99.9% .9 of the world, use these things called package managers. That is the time when you create the definition of exactly what open source is going to be put into something. So there's a great opportunity for us to figure out a way to stamp that and, and at that point in time figure out like this build contains these, these things. Mm -hmm. um, at the point in time though, we have to look at these things like similar code. So what we see is people taking you know, vulnerable libraries or vulnerable pieces of code, copying and pasting it, putting it into another one and pushing it out on the web. Right. So now when a vulnerability gets pushed in one, like we need to know that it is the same code in, in others. And there right. are computer science techniques for doing this, winnowing, hashing, these, uh -huh. these, these uh -huh. things. Um, but you know, again, they're big data systems. Like you know, you, you, someone publishes a new library. I have to go and see: is it the same thing of these two million that have already been published yes. before? And so, to a large extent, like we have to figure out like this almost like it's a code clearinghouse that we've yes. got to have. You, we're kind of like living in a distributed world. So, yeah, and that's the, that's the reality of it. So I think you know, altruistically, you could say we have to figure out how to make the upstream secure and have kind of clean pipes. But the reality is, every developer now works in multiple languages. Yeah. So it's not like any one of those things can really can really do it. So the best hope we have is really figuring out when you consume it. So, you know, it's kind of like street food, right? Like, you could argue if you go to you know Southeast Asia and you you eat from 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 food stands, like if the Thai government regulates street food, like is it really going to help help a difference? Like you got to figure out where you're going to eat it from, right? And probably the safest way to go do it. Even though I would much rather we had a you know an upstream regulated system, but just being practical. Um, but you know we have an opportunity to bake stuff into tooling and 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 sort of sort of, sort of push it and we need to figure out how to make standards so that we can you know know that if it's this type of vulnerability and it was found in this type of way like how can we be consistent around finding those things? Mark Murphy, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was a blast. Great.